0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh,
1: oh, oh, O'Reilly Auto Parts. Coming up on this week's show, one of the best beat-em-ups ever is back. Certainly brings back the Walkman.
2: We chat to Adrian from Adrian's Digital Basement.
1: the retro hour podcast is brought to you every week with our friends at bitmap books now one of their books you need to check out super famicom the box art collection now if you're a fan of the super famicom you're going to love this collection of the best box art chronicling the illustrations that adorned japanese packaging during the height of the 16-bit era you can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books on their website at bitmapbooks.com And with our mates at PCBWay, who offer a fully-featured custom PCB prototype service. And they have low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer services like 3D printing and injection moulding. And they're massive supporters of the retro community. So you can get an instant quote for your project right now by visiting them at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 361. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Potts, And this is, of course, a podcast that every single Friday, Ravi slips into his acid-washed jeans, Joe perms his hair, I put my shoulder pads on and we get in the DeLorean and take you back to the good old days of video games. Nice. That's what he saw the bat, isn't it? I like that. <laughs>
2: I'd prefer Robin Reliant. That's, um, yeah, that I that's more that. you, Ravi.
1: That's more you. <laughs> and hopefully Ravi's not sounding uh, too hungover today because you are back from a uh, a weekend on the Emerald Isle. You're out in that island for Amiga Island yeah, this weekend. Yeah, it was
2: really good to come back, actually, because um, Amiga Island was uh, an event that kind of just ended before the pandemic uh, so it's actually like the last event we did before lockdown. So um you know It's
1: crazy. I've got a video of yeah, Amiga Island twenty twenty. We went out there end of January, like literally two months before everything kicked off. And it just feels like a different world. Yeah. It feels totally. like about ten years so, ago. So
2: you know it's a big it's a big change coming back and actually having that event back on and it was an absolutely amazing event. Uh, you know, there's quite a few people there, really good fun. And uh they had a chat from Ron Nicholson as well. Um, one of the original Amiga developers. Um, also Nick Veach as well, who was the old um, Amiga format editor. So that was really interesting. Oh, nice. And um, you know, they also had this wicked thing that I want to give a quick mention by a developer called Rod S- Rob Smith, which is a retro directory. So go to retro dot directory, and this basically is free listings for like places all around the world. So you know, when you're visiting a city. And you want to find out where the game shops are or there's like, you know, something cool like a, a lemming statue in the city or something. This this is going to be able to tell you. And, uh, you know, it's user created. So users can just add all their information onto it. And I, I thought that was really interesting. He did a talk about it there. And, uh, you know, this is really useful because other cities I go to, I'm always like, oh. you know, I've got half an hour or an hour, let's go look around. You're uh,
3: you're scrambling on Google to see if somewhere's still open.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: Yeah. exactly. And you can just uh, go onto this directory and then find it straight away, which is really nice.
1: Um, Yeah, so normally if if I go to Birmingham or York or something, I'm always tapping one of you guys up like, you've been here, haven't you? Isn't there a game shop I need to visit? Yeah, and it's worldwide
2: as well. So uh, it's pretty amazing, you know, uh, if you're going on international journeys as well.
1: Yeah, I'm sure my wife will love that when we go on holiday this summer. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so it sounds like you had a good time in Ireland though, Ravi. You know, nice to uh, be back out there at that event. Sure. Yeah, video's going to come onto
2: my YouTube channel as well, so it should be out by the time this podcast is out.
1: Now, uh, the podcast this week, we've got an incredible guest, actually. Speaking of YouTube, this is someone who I've watched on YouTube for, God, must be over 10 years now. And uh, one of those channels that I always found really interesting, even if he's covering... A machine that I've got no idea about. Because I guess this week, Adrian Black runs a channel, Adrian's Digital Basement. And I don't know about you, but I've got a collection of machines and it constantly feels like a, a battle, just trying to maintain them all. You know, you put a computer or a console in the wardrobe for like a couple of years and then next time you take it out, you think, oh... Has a battery leaked or have the capacitors died and ruined the motherboard? It does feel like a battle, you know, just constantly maintaining this collection and keeping them running sometimes.
3: Oh, God, absolutely. You know what? I'm actually um, sadly kind of packing away a lot of my retro stuff at the moment to go into storage in my attics. My my daughter is going into the retro room, into the bigger room, and I'm being downgraded to the little room. And uh, I was going through all my Game Boys and Game Boy Advances the other day and like I was literally taking the backs off of them all and going, please, pass Joe, please don't have let me down.
1: (laughs) No battery in there, please. But
3: luckily, yeah, no, I'm I'm quite pleased with my previous self. Uh, There was no batteries in any of them, Uh, nothing leaking or anything like that, but you have just given me a nudge to check like uh, is it the like the original Xbox and the Sega Saturn. Yeah, I yeah, the consoles really aren't actress. as
2: bad as the computers. No. And uh, Adrian covers a lot of computers, but also mm. he gets into CRTs as well. And the thing I love about his channel is, you know, he's just diagnosing stuff and kind of going through it slowly and and trying to work it out himself, which is uh it's pretty nice to see and pretty therapeutic as well.
1: That's one thing about he mentions in the interview that he's got no electronics training background stuff he's figured out all by himself. And he gives us some tips as well on uh, things to look out for and how to maintain our collection and the kind of tools that you might want to have in your arsenal to keep your computers up and running. Because I think, you know, there are people, and this is probably a really good idea, who kind of do like an annual audit of their machines. So you might have a weekend where you actually go through and test everything, make sure it's all running. Because, you know, a lot of the time, if you're leaving these machines in your attic or in a wardrobe and you're not bringing them out for a few years, I imagine that is probably where problems can begin. Yeah, so it's um, definitely worth keeping an eye on them. And also, we have a really interesting, very nostalgic chat about VIC 20s and Commodore 64s and Apple II's and, and bulletin boards, the kind of North the first American
2: of scene as well. Yeah, so
1: he's a really interesting guy. I guess this week, Adrian Black from Adrian's Digital Basement. He'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, before that, of course, we update you on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last week. And let's jump straight into this week's stories. It's always nice to see a brand from the past getting brought back. And this one, I think, is probably up there in the most iconic tech brands of all time. Sony have just released a new Walkman.
2: Yeah, this uh, looks really interesting seeing this at CES. You know, I've um, been a fan of having your own m- music player and your own kind of media player. I've been going with mini disc, um, <laughs> but I was thinking of upgrading to a Zune as well. <laughs> so, so this looks uh, like something that would interest me.
3: Yeah, I, I see what you're saying, Ravi. Like it kind of separates it from your phone, doesn't it? And makes it feel a little bit more tangible and physical.
2: Yeah, you um, just don't get notifications on it. And, you know, if you enjoy music without Spotify adverts.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so this is the new Sony Walkman NWA306. Um, they always
1: come such catchy names, don't yeah,
3: they? Yeah, really. It rolls off the tongue, that does. Um, I like the look of it. And, I, and I, interestingly, you know, it, obviously it's it's a modern Walkman. So, it's you know, it's got a touch screen and it connects to your Wi-Fi to download your songs onto and everything. Um, but what I do like is down the left-hand side is it does actually have physical buttons on there, like physical metal buttons. And it kind of comes, comes back to that, like, physicality of it, which is quite yeah. nice.
2: It's also got a phono plug-in, so you can actually plug headphones in, which mm. has been yeah, has been removed much... from quite a few phones, you know. yeah. Um, also, it, it does look interesting. Like, Sony have an interesting background with the Walkman where they went into... The phones, I don't know if you remember those like Sony Ericsson, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Walkman like crossover phones. Those are yeah. quite good for a while when, when they got into the like digital scene. But this area of high res players has uh, been going for quite a while actually. So it's good to see them kind of enter it. And I guess the popularity of, you know, uh, the new generation, they might find having a Walkman as something cool. They've probably seen it in movies. and
3: uh, it's, it's definitely something I can see my dad buying because he's a big like, sony buffing like he does love his music tech and stuff he's really big into his music and i feel like this is something he would buy rather than using like his
2: iphone apparently right. it's uh quite popular with the younger generation as well Joe. oh really so, yeah uh, yeah cool. it could be something that your daughter gets eventually oh wow um, yeah you, you know this stuff comes around doesn't it It like yeah. it gets popular for a while and then it dies off like vinyl yeah. did and then it and then it kind of comes back and i think having a separate audio player I've always thought the benefits of having a, just an iPod in your car um, mm. is always good. You know, if you're losing signal or you get sick of radio and the same repetitive yeah. tunes, you've got your kind of iPod that you can always grab.
1: Yeah, I generally take one on holiday with me. If we, um, if we're going away, you don't always know what the hotel Wi-Fi is going to be mm. like. Yeah, so I've got a little like an old school iPod dock. That i can put putting my suitcase. I've got a 160 gig iPod loaded with music and mixes, so I generally take that away for the hotel room yeah. uh, or, or the balcony when we go away. But this new um, Sony Walkman, this is actually it does have some quite cutting edge features in there as well. Apparently, it's got artificial intelligence that accurately upscales compressed digital music files. To higher quality, so I think that is a big market now for these dedicated players. It's more like the audiophile. Yeah, kind of, yeah, the they
2: they can't sell it on Megabase anymore. But um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it, I. To be honest, I can't really tell the difference with high res <laughs> audio, and that maybe it's because my ears are getting a bit older now. But um, all,
1: yeah, all, you know, you, whole
3: years of being a sound tech. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, boop, boop, just boop, boop, destroyed boop, them boop. through gigs, yeah. you know. Yeah.
1: yeah. Although, um, did you see 8-Bit Guys video from CES last week? Uh, no. no. Now, this was interesting. So he got invited out there by a company who, I think they made the the air conditioning unit or something. He okay. put it in his home studio. They invited oh, him out okay. of CES yeah. you know, to their booth. And he had a little look around, but he, he made a tour of it. Now, obviously, there's all the stuff, you know, that you'd expect to see at CES, all the new car tech and that kind of thing. But he did go to um, a couple of booths where they were displaying cassette Walkmans and also... Audio CD players with cassette tapes in there as well, like you know, old school kind of boom boxes. Mm, that's seen
2: off Stranger Things, that's that's what's done it. <laughs> oh, oh, but oh, it, it was weird in, in
1: 2023, yeah, seeing so many cassette players at CES, it's, it's definitely it, a trendy thing again. It's, weirdly.
3: it's definitely like a, a weird natural progression of like you know, like Ravi said, vinyl came and went and then it's come back, and then to a degree. Cassettes have come back, you know. To, to you know, they're, they're not as collectible as vinyl. I don't think there's as big cassette market there is there is the vinyl market. But it it does seem to be coming full circle. Like you know, all of a sudden it's like, okay, so what's the progression after that? Well, it's, well, it's the boombox mini disc. The but players. they yeah. mini
2: disc is too obscure for them to kind of work out. It needs to be a film where where someone plays with mini disc or a new series, yeah, <laughs> you know? a remake of Hackers or something like that. yeah <laughs>
1: Well, that 90s show's just landed, hasn't it? On Netflix. Maybe that could maybe be it, it's in there. There you go. <laughs> but, you know, so, yeah. um,
2: I think this makes sense after the, the, the kind of dropping of um, iPods as well and mm. uh, that kind of abandonment that there's a bit of a gap in that kind of area of like portable music players.
1: Yeah, I think there's still definitely a market there. And, uh, you know, even I don't know if you guys have bought a CD recently, but I've actually got back into buying audio CDs. I think I've got a CD
2: player. <laughs> maybe on my old pc uh windows xp machine but no
1: yeah i've got my uh my cd32 that i've got hooked up to some big speakers that i use in my in my in my office i've got um a dj cd player in this room here so i've kind of been going through and um even charity shops finding like old mix cds from the 90s and stuff you know buying the old ministry of sound collections now and that's kind of
2: what i call music
1: yeah, maybe not quite that bad. You know? <laughs> not, listening to my, uh, not listening to Aqua Barbie Girl or anything, obviously. <laughs> but um,
2: <laughs> Don, yeah, dancing I think a
1: bit of cotton-eyed joke. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there is definitely something to be said about having, you know, physical music player and collection. So I can kind of see the appeal in that. And uh, it does seem uh, interesting that it does seem to be returning to the mainstream again. So we'll keep an eye on that. Now, something else that's very exciting, and um, it's always nice to see one of our favourite franchises getting an update, although I must admit I'm a little bit nervous about this one because um, over the last couple of weeks, Sega have kind of done a bit of a Nintendo. They've been taking down a few fan projects, which is very unlike them. Um, if you've been following our our friends at Bitmap Books on their Twitter, you'll see they had a bit of trouble with uh, Sega and their their recent Mega Drive book. Uh, but this is a fan project, an update of Golden Axe. This is called Golden Axe Returns, and this game literally just dropped in the last 24 hours. So at the time of recording, I haven't had chance to play this yet, but I've got the file downloaded, ready for a blast on it after we finish recording. So um this is a complete fan recreation in that classic Golden Axe style.
3: Yeah, I think you've hit the head on the uh, nail on the head there, uh Dan. I think you know if anybody's listening to this, you know, as the episode comes out, if you want to check it out, go check it out right away because of yeah, I don't know what Sega are up to at the moment. Fingers crossed it's because they're, you know, might be working on some titles or, you know, licensing some things, you know, like, you know, that with their Streets of Rage 4 that we got a couple of years ago. But, you know, I do I can't decide with this Golden Axe Returns whether I love the look of it or hate the look of it. But it's been created by um, a user called ZVtor, I think it's, it's, it's said, and he's been... Zviter. That's probably better. <laughs> yeah. um, he's been using um, open Beats of Rage. I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, the program that lets you make, you know, It's like a side-scrolling
2: like engine, which is kind of yeah. based on, you know, the Streets of Rage, but you can you can change up everything, chuck the sprites yeah. in. Um, yeah, after. yeah. I remember years ago, there was a lot of Asterix titles. That yeah, Obelix
3: <laughs> like, and Asterix and stuff <laughs> yeah. like
2: that. Yeah. Um, but he's kind of like
3: built a lot of these sprites from the ground up and, you know, They've definitely got a kind of like a kind of 32-bit look to them, you know, a little bit better than the Mega Drive, um, but still in that 2D vein. And I really, really like the feel of it. I've not played it, but from looking at it, it's got a real nice feel of like when you hit the enemies and it's very true to the original, you know, kind of like Golden Axe 1 and 2 and maybe even number 3. And he's even put a load of lore in there to, you know, what the characters are doing. And, you know, it's set in between... uh, It's set after number 3, but before golden axe the duel which was the, the obscure fighting yeah. game that came out on the sega saturn so you know there's a real like passion for it there and i've watched a lot of the videos and gameplay of it and i do like the look of it but then i'm like it's, it's something about the character's eyes it looks quite yeah. cartoony. They, 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 they always feel a bit
2: big in 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 beats of rage as well but the cool yeah. thing about this engine is that it's ported on so many systems like mm. i was using it on a morphos
0: as well and
2: there's like so many ports around so I can imagine if you've got that engine running on a system you know it'll be on Linux, it'll be on Windows and Mac and stuff. You could just grab this file and and run it straight away.
1: He's picked out some characters from across the various games, the early games anyway. You've got Axe Battler, uh, Kane Blade, um, Tyrus Flair, Sarah Burns in here as well and I think one of the most important things to me is that it's got the co-op mode in there as well which to me... Golden Axes, I, I couldn't play it solo, I'd get bored. It's definitely always a two-player mm. game to me, yeah, Golden
3: Axe. Absolutely. And you know, it's not going to take much power to run on your PC and stuff like that, so it does look as though it's going to just be a case of download the file, plug in a couple of USB controllers and away you go, which is pretty awesome. Mm.
1: Yeah, and the last game we got in the Golden Axe series, which I actually kind of put out of my mind, <laughs> was uh, Beast Rider. They came up back in 2008, Yeah. which was... Uh, Terrible, to say the least. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I, I'd I love it if .MU got their hands on it. You know, they've done a great job. Of streets of H4 did a great job with Turtles. You know, it'd be cool to see the Golden, Golden Axe IP come about. Fingers crossed this guy doesn't get, you know, the uh, Golden Axe return pulled or anything like that by Sega. But
1: yeah, man, it's good to see it back, you know,
3: in one form or another.
1: Yeah, so I think it looks great fun. And, um, you know, as a fan of the original Golden Axe games, I think, you know, it's really nice to see that, you know, return to form. Mm for the series, admittedly from a fan, Um, and it is free, uh, available to play right now on your PC. The game uh, literally just dropped this week, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this was an interesting article that popped up on my timeline from uh, quite a lot of sources, actually, over the last couple of days. People amazed that Chuck E. Cheese, which I know is uh, one of your favourite fast food places, Ravi, you normally talk about that in a Christmas quiz. It generally pops up at some point. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's kind of got a gaming connection because Nolan Bushnell was uh, one of the founders of Chuck E. Cheese, which is a, a fast food restaurant chain in uh, North America. Mr. Mate, I've never been to a, to a Chuck E. No. Cheese.
3: No, nor have I. I've never been either. <laughs> it's just a funny gag with us.
1: <laughs> but um, the reason this has been making the headlines is because apparently they still use floppy disks to update some of their machines at the moment. Now, this was a video on TikTok that shows one of their employees, who I've got to say has got a very kind of retro look to him. I think he's got a bit of a mullet going on. He's got a nice uh, 80s stash in this video too. And it shows him upgrading a robot from a floppy disk. Now, we
2: didn't have many of these um, kind of dancing, talking, animatronic robots um, in the UK, like, uh, I, th- I could, uh, do you have any memories of dancing robots? I,
3: I remember the Charlie Chalks, you know, kind of restaurants across the UK, but they didn't have, I don't recall them having like dancing robots, but, you know, it was what, the whole dancing robot thing, I remember always seeing it on TV, like in The Simpsons, you know, like them having gags. It's a very American like thing. It's isn't a very, it? very American thing, but I do know with Chuck E. Cheese, they are slowly, by the end of this year, the aim is for them to have removed all the animatronics from their restaurants and they're replacing it with like a mini disco kind of thing. But as you say, uh, as you say Dan the uh, the uh, TikToker here he's pointing out that the technology is that they use the last time it was updated was 1998. So as a result when they send over new programs for you know to program the robots and animatronics to dance to to do you know which controls the lighting and everything like that they're using floppy disks still because that's what the computer the systems they were using and then it, it, it's literally it's a floppy disk it he puts in and it's quite an interesting video you know he explains obviously watching the video he explains it so much better but essentially that's just programming the lights and then pro tells the robot what to dance to with the lights and then it's then accompanied by two dvd players uh, which unfortunately essentially control screens which are next to the, the one animatronic which is left so originally back in like the 70s and 80s they'd have like a whole band dancing around didn't they but now they just have the one the right, the okay. one robot in the middle and then the dvds
1: which is a, a robot rat or something yeah it's a robot it's rat really, or maybe a mouse yeah, maybe a mouse it'd be a bit more appealing <laughs> while you're eating
3: yeah. um and the floppy disk controls him dancing around and then it you know the dvd players work in tandem playing the visuals on the on the TV Yeah, the floppy's kind of
2: doing the boot stuff. Yeah. And then the DVDs have all the, like, info on them.
3: So it's using a Cyberstar computer, uh, which is from 1998, um, which obviously at that time, I guess, was kind of in that transition from, like, <laughs> floppy disk was still a thing and then DVD was coming out, I guess. So It's just yeah. it's just so odd to see them still working together in tandem, but also, like, 25 years later. You Know the head office is still sending out to the restaurants. Here's the latest dance on floppy disk.
1: That is very cool. I'm just imagining Ravi heading on to eBay next to try and buy the animatronic rat for his bedroom if they're uh, if they're selling that <laughs> off. Awesome. Come
2: round the house and I've reprogrammed it to do rave tunes, <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> in the background of a DJ stream. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Yeah, that would fit. So, uh, yeah, if you want to check out the uh, the, <laughs> I'm sure it's a mouse, the dancing animatronic mouse, um, that's programmed by floppy disks at Chuck E. Cheese get a look in while you can because apparently they're phasing them all out a bit later on this year now if this seems to be a bit of a running trend as well that we talk about quite a lot on this show camera projects and camera hacks for the game boy
2: yeah i still don't get this and why they're doing <laughs> them especially this project so yeah the, the, the
3: game boy camera seems to be coming up like every other week with us at the moment but this is another project the camera m project um which is you know another kind of like passion love you know, kind of child to, to the Game Boy camera and, I guess, old technology. So this comes from a user, Chris Graves. And uh, what they've done is they've got a real passion and love for the Game Boy and the Game Boy Pocket, etc. from the 90s. And essentially what they've been doing is, you know, kind of tinkering away um, for many, many years, you know, modding Game Boys and stuff like that. And they've finally kind of taken a dive to essentially build the Game, Boy cam- the Game Boy camera into what looks like a vintage camera to me. Yeah, they've uh, kind
2: of... uh, They've, they've re- rehoused the whole thing, basically. Yeah. Within this, uh, like, fake leather, yeah. kind of uh, old-school-looking camera case.
3: Yeah, and it, it looks like a real thing you would have bought in, like, the 70s or 80s. Like, a little, like, state-of-the-art pocket camera. But obviously... It is the pixelated mess of the, the Game Boy camera when you take the photos, um, but I do love the look and the style of it, and and it is really smart how they've done it. But what they've even done is they've they've not just put like the guts of a Game Boy in you know in a in a in a leather case. What they've done is they've like moved the A button, so the A button is now a clicker on the top of the camera. So it is actually the feel and the shape of a camera, if that makes
1: sense. So the Game Boy's in there as well, and the cameras, yeah in this little leather case. Interesting. Yeah, okay. so the
3: Game Boy is in there as well. And ultimately you can still open it up and switch out switch out the carts. So when you turn it around, there is still a little LED screen on there and you can still cont- you can still play Game Boy games on it. So if you turn the camera around and flip it around, there is still a screen on there and it's still ultimately a Game Boy. It just looks really smart, Looks just like a really cool piece of technology. And, yeah, you know, they've utilised the Game Boy SP buttons in there as well, just because they were smaller and more stylish.
2: Yeah, it's got an a IPS screen in there as well and um, USB-C charging. It's interesting to think, like, you know, those, those 60s and 70s cameras would have been chemical, but, um, you know, digital cameras came out a lot later and... Um, you know, having actual film in there and stuff. Uh the digital cameras were probably higher as even the earlier ones than mm. than the Game Boy camera. But um yeah, it's kind of a nice marriage of stuff, but it's really for aesthetics, isn't it? And yeah. I think they need to stop. They need to move on to something. Get, get on to the eye toy or People something. People need no. yeah,
3: like we want to move on the eye toy. I was about to say, they need to get over the
2: Game Boy camera, but yeah, let's, let's see some What's eye
1: toy next? magic. What,
2: what can we predict? Hey,
1: Game Boy camera glasses. Yeah. going to be next too? You know, it's funny. I saw another article, and uh, this is a product that they're actually selling. I've seen some adverts pop up for this. It's a really low res. I think it's like 1.2 megapixel digital camera and they're kind of marketing this as a retro style camera okay and i've been seeing adverts pop up for this on instagram and facebook and the like you know you know it it looks a bit like vhs it's a retro style camera really all it is is a really bad low quality probably 20 year old chinese digital camera nice that they found a massive old warehouse full of them and now they're repackaging these and selling them as retro. If,
2: if they can sell them and remarket, <laughs> i kind of, good on them. You
1: know? <laughs> I, think, I think I've think still got one of those in my drawer that looks that bad that I haven't used since like 2002. I, I used to
2: remember the storage on the di- digital cameras. I think you take about 10 photos and then you just like erase, yeah. erase over them. And like now with the iPhone and stuff, you have all the cloud storage. So you're actually saving like images. But God, the amount of like footage I went over... And just rewrote because I didn't have, you know, a, a higher capacity memory card.
1: Yeah, I think I had a 64 megabyte memory card in mine back in the day. And I thought, well, yeah, I get about, yeah, 64 pictures on it. And the, video was, the video was just yeah. awful, wasn't it? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, you know, I, I think there's that old saying that limitation breeds creativity. You know, it is interesting seeing some of the images people are making with these really low spec old-school cameras but um yeah i think there's only so many of these uh game boy mods that we can just, see now. So. that's going
2: to be an art exhibition of like you know game boy photos at some point that might be the next thing i think yeah. you know when a logical you said, what's next the next step thing? i
1: think now you're probably seeing all over uh your socials and um, people going wild for the hottest energy drink on the market or is it an energy drink prime everyone's going crazy about this i must admit i haven't tried it uh, i think it's
2: from some Twitch people and people are reselling them for hundreds of pounds or something.
3: <laughs> I'm wakey wines, I'm embarrassed to say. Everybody at work's been going on about it. Um I believe it is an energy <laughs> drink. <laughs> Isn't it coconut like coconut flavoured or something? It's I think it's made out of coconut water. And I think it's more you know, people are probably screaming at us right now, but it's more marketed as like a, you know what Lucas is? Like it's not necessarily a uh an energy drink, but more. It's a glucose drink. It's like a sports
2: oh, drink. Oh, it's, it's by Logan Paul and KSI. Okay, yeah, that's, that's why it. it's popular.
1: It's not like the, uh, the nuclear waste that you drink, Joe, the, the monsters and the <laughs> <Red
2: Bull. laughs> No, it's not like
3: that. Um, it's, it's still, I believe, it's not fizzy. Um, but yeah, kids have been going crazy for it. But uh, I, know, I know where you're going with this, Dan.
1: <laughs> yeah, because this could be the new one. I mean, you might want to stock up on these before uh, everyone else gets on this, because this is uh, a Resident Evil flavored drink have,
3: have you ever wondered what resident evil might taste like you know rotten flesh sludge <laughs> maybe it smells of sewage or something like that um, but no this is a, a, a you know a promotional thing i guess it's like this is by game flavor and capcom in a joint release um limited to only 4750 um packages of this um so it's going to be even more limited than prime It's meant to be a celebration of the 25th anniversary of Resident Evil, but I hate to say it because I'm an absolute Resident Evil fanatic. The 25th anniversary of Resident Evil was in 2021, and we're now in 2023. Two years ago, yeah. So it's been two years ago, so they're milking this a little bit. But this is a case which is presented in um, the item box style of, you know, famous item box of the Resident Evil games, and it comes with 10 first aid sprays, which are just... They're just drinks. They are ten cans of soft drink, which come in the re- classic Resident Evil first aid spray style, uh, which is also accompanied accompanied by four ink ribbons, which are what you use to save game in the Resident Evil game. So it's a real smart, cool little collector's item, and uh, you know, luckily it doesn't taste of sludge and dead dogs and zombies and stuff like that it is it is a cucumber and mint soft drink
1: um which actually sounds quite nice yeah i think anyone that buys this no one's gonna drink it are they they could put water in there yeah
2: you've not talked about the price i've not
3: talked uh, about the price it it is as expensive as these cans of prime so it is um 215 dollars or 199 euros for this wow. case, and which guys. is
2: pretty grim, you know. People can't really afford to get food and stuff at the moment, and one can is like you know, that kind of
3: well, price. I, I guess is... no
1: one's forcing you to buy no. it, 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 is a
3: is a bit ultimately, it is ultimately a collector's item, and it isn't one can, you get 10 cans in the pack. So, like, I tell uh, you, that, you I
2: bought Crystal Pepsi off eBay a few <laughs> years ago, and that was like they'd re released it, and that was quite cheap. But I think starting at 199 for a yeah, the cans of fizzy yeah. pop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, like, it, it,
3: yeah. It, like I say, I'm a Resident Evil fanatic. I ain't going to be buying this.
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> absolutely... how long does it last? Like, you oh, know, is it, it got a sell-by date? It'll or, have a sell-by you know, by date on it. It'll, by have ex- date, yeah. it'll have
3: a use-by date on it for sure. But <laughs> it really is a it is collector's item. As Dan said, I don't think this is really... Realistically, I think, I think in
2: 20 this. years, you're going to have someone go, I'm going to drink the Resident Evil yeah. drink from this. Has it still <laughs> yeah. lasted? Yeah. On the 50th anniversary.
1: You know what, though? It, it is interesting because they're talking about in the article here that, you know, if you buy the case, it's kind of packaged so all the cans are in there. And if you drink just one of them, you're ruining the, you ruin the integrity of the full set. Yeah, yeah. you have. So you're, you're buying it to not even drink
3: it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that, yeah. that is pretty much the wow. point of it. <laughs> it's just going to be, it's a collectible. It's, I don't think they're trying to mark it as this is a really expensive drink. It's like it's, first world problems. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is ultimately, it is just a Resident Evil collectible to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Resident yeah. Evil.
2: I've spent 200 euros on it. I don't drink and i'm really thirsty
1: <laughs> that's the thing i know i'd go out for the it. afternoon my wife would be like oh i found this nice can in your in your office It sounded quite nice Get a cucumber drink i had a, had a can of it It wasn't very tasty and i be like oh, you've ruined the set you've now. ruined the set you so, owe me hundreds <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah if you're a interesting collector's item i think definitely kind of riding on the the prime hype and i wonder how many more of these we're gonna see you know people making a uh, what I imagine is very cheap to make soft drinks in cans and you know releasing them as limited edition collectibles. But yeah, it's um, weird. It's you...
2: weird as well because it's not. It's not even fizzy pop, is it? It's like green herb tea. And yeah. like, um, I've I've seen a popular one's liquid death, which is um, just water. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that's, yeah. I've seen that liquid death. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Strange trends at the moment. Yeah, so if you want to uh, pre-order a case, um, very limited. I'll put a link to that and everything else we talk about in our show notes at retrohour.com. Now, amazingly, we're almost at the end of January. That does mean, though, uh, next weekend, it feels like ages ago since we lost the patrons hangout, because I think we, we did that a bit early in December, didn't we? Yeah, I
3: was going to say, we did it a week early, because it would have fall- fallen on, like, Christmas Day. But, yeah, we do have our patrons hangout coming up, which will be a mm-hmm. week on Sunday, which will be the 29th of January, I believe. Uh, which we'll be doing at eight o'clock UK time um, at 8 pm 8 pm yeah and all of our patrons are welcome to come and hang out with us chill talk about games talk about retro stuff talk about what we've been up to show off our collections and stuff like that I always really really look forward to it every month
2: I met a few patrons in Ireland that mm. actually said you know we we just join the hangout but we don't have any video any sound we just like yeah. sit back and watch the thing yeah. and kind of enjoy it and you know it's great cuz people can can get involved or they can just hang back and chill yeah. and yeah. Uh, yeah it's just great having different different variety of uh listeners watching
1: Yeah, and I think it's just great if you want to, you know, you've maybe got some retro systems you need some advice on, maybe you want to show off your collection. We always do that, a bit of a show and tell kind of thing. And, you know, we've got a great little community there. So um, all patrons are welcome to join. That's coming up uh, next weekend on Sunday, 29th of January. It would be great to see you there. And also, same day, we're going to be recording our first episode this year, which will be episode number 30 of our patrons' exclusive podcast. The Retro Hour After Hours. So if you're back us on Patreon, for gold members and above, you get access to um, it'll be 30 shows. The whole back catalogue gets unlocked. And also we give you the normal podcast um, early most weeks. You get it ad-free. We do about 10 to 15 minutes of extra content every week on the normal podcast just for our patrons. So if you'd like to join us on there, now would be a very good time to get involved in the Retro Hour patrons community. And for joining us on there, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and i'll let you you do this one revy hall of fame Let's welcome in our newest member this week mark hargreaves thank you so much mark for backing us on patreon and if you'd like to join him all the details to get involved in our Patreon community are on our website right now at the retrohour.com right then we'll have more news for you next friday and next we're going to be catching up with our special guest this week the wonderful adrian from adrian's digital basement You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the highlight of the show when we welcome on our very special guest. And today, we always love chatting to like-minded people, other content creators, people we admire, people that we watch all the time on YouTube. We love getting them on for a chat and also getting some useful advice as well on maintaining our retro collections. And our guest this week definitely runs one of the best YouTube channels for that kind of thing. It is Adrian Black from the YouTube channel... Adrian's Digital Basement. Hey, Adrian. Hello, hello.
0: Welcome to Adrian's Digital Basement. Oh wait, that's, that's the wrong
1: show. <laughs> well, welcome to the retro hour, Adrian. It's uh, lovely to have you on, and uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to us. And also, I mean, we're obviously going to ask you about some repair tips. You know, I've got. I think I'm on my last count, I had about eighty-five computers and consoles. So it's um, it's a constant battle just trying to maintain them all and get them up and running. As I'm sure you can uh, you can appreciate. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I have to say I I got started doing this type of repair work for that exact reason. I knew yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, keeping a collection alive was going to require my own work or a lot of money. So it was cheaper yeah. if I did it myself.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, kind of going back to, you know, the start, Adrian, it's always nice to kind of find out a bit of background on uh, where our guest journey began, as it were. I mean, what, what initially got you into computers then? Do you remember where it all started for you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was about seven years old, and this was in the very early 80s. I I was born in the 70s. I'm a kid of the 70s. And uh, growing up in Canada, um, at that point, you know, early 80s, computers were obviously around, but most families didn't have one. And my father actually opened one of the first video rental stores in uh, at least Montreal, the city I lived in. And back then the 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 stores that rented the tapes also had VCRs for sale and i think for rental as well because you know not a lot of people had VCRs back in the early 80s so through that my father had uh, wholesale connections to buy equipment because you know had this he had VCRs in the store and i used to go by there after school um, and you know hang out with the employees and stuff They were a bunch of teenagers and whatnot i'd watch movies but they had some like Atari 2600 game console, I think a ColecoVision that they also rented or sold games. So I used to play the games a lot. I think my father saw me and was like, ah, you know, he seems to really be good at these games. Maybe he'd be good at computers. So he actually bought me a uh, Commodore VIC-20 as my first computer in 1982. And that's really what got, you know, where I got my start using uh, tapes and uh, had the basic manual. I don't think I even got any software originally. Maybe I had like one game. And I used to, you know, seven-year-old kid with a little tiny television hooked up to it. I mean, I think it was like a five-inch TV. And I used to uh, type in programs and and do all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was the VIC-20 that really got my start with, and and it kind of went, it snowballed on from there.
2: Had you um, heard of Commodore before and had you wanted a VIC-20? What were the kind of rivals that were, that were also available at the time?
0: Honestly, I actually don't, recall. I don't think I asked for that computer. I don't even think I asked for a computer at all. I think it was really a surprise like I don't remember if it was Christmas or, or or my birthday, but he just got me this machine and I I honestly don't think a single one of my friends at the time had a computer. I mean, I was in um what I was 7, so I don't know what what year of school you'd be in, like second grade or something like that or or first grade. I don't even remember, but um yeah, it was just at that time at least in my circle there were no computers yet like in school or anywhere. So I had just I'd never even touched one until I got that machine.
1: We well, you know as a 7-year-old kid and obviously turning on the Vic 20 you uh dropped straight into BASIC. You know, the ready prompt was there flashing away on the screen. Um what what kind of stuff were you doing on that machine then? How did you kind of dive into it?
0: It absolutely was I I I vividly remember turning it on, you know, you see that white background with the blue text and the the user manual was really well written and it was clear and easy to understand, even for a seven year old. And it just had basic examples in there. And I started typing those in and I think I started asking for uh, more books and magazines and things around that that had more programs that I could type in. So I did a lot of entry of those programs from magazines and books. And I would save them onto audio cassettes. So I had a little stack of audio cassettes, and I used that that external cassette drive. Which I'm sure you guys are aware that in uh in the U.S. and Canada, it's, it's much more rare to to use a tape versus a disc yeah. drive. I mean,
1: yeah, they were everywhere. here. Every, everyone had cassette tapes. Exactly. Like even yeah.
0: way way into the you know into the 80s, people were still using tapes. And yet, I mean, that was my last you know use of a tape drive, that vic 20. And um, you know, I, I did eventually get friends with computers but they had later, you know, they had uh, Apple twos and the Commodore 64, stuff like that. And they all had a disc drive. So I think it was not long that I, I really wanted disc drive, but yeah, back to your question. I was, I was really typing stuff in. And I remember, I think my dad bought me this like binder. It was like a binder that had a bunch of tapes in it. Like you open it and there was tapes, like it stuck into this plastic and you take it out and there'd be like sample programs on there. So I remember writing game, like, you know, simple games you know doing some basic programming on my own with from scratch based on what i had learned out of all these books and magazines
2: did you have the um 16k ram expansion
0: i eventually i did i remember that was a big deal like i asked my father like please could i get this ram expansion it was black it was the, the official commodore one because i remember i was really running into those limits whatever like the 3k of basic ram free Even just typing stuff in from magazines, Um, because I remember doing some translation, you know, it'd be a program written for another micro and I would, you know, fiddle with it to make it work on the Vic 20. And then it would like, oh, out of RAM. (laughs) So I I was like, please get me this cartridge. So that was a really big deal. And I remember opening the cartridge because I wanted to see inside, like what exactly gave it that RAM expansion? Like, how could I plug a cartridge in and then have more memory? I found that really intriguing at the time.
1: It's just mind-blowing that we could do anything with 3K or even 16K, isn't it?
0: I mean, mean, what what does the VIC-20 have? 5K of RAM total, I think. And it it is staggering that that's enough to even make a computer that can, you know, do cool stuff, play sound and graphics or, you know, text-based graphics.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, which machine did you upgrade to after the vic
0: it's interesting, the the roadmap, um, you know, because if you watch my YouTube channel now, you probably think, oh, look, he's so into the Commodore 64, repairing them and stuff. Mm. He must have had one. I never had a Commodore 64 ever in my entire life until probably in the last you know, several years. Um, right. What had happened is my father, you know, saw me using the computer and was like, oh, you know, he's really enjoying that. This computer thing is probably the future. So... I don't know how this happened, but he went and found a second hand Apple II Plus and it, it, like a complete setup, um, 80 column display, you know, Amber monitor It had a daisy wheel printer, a dot matrix printer, it had a 300 baud modem, double disc drives, like the whole setup. And that was the quote unquote family computer. So it was downstairs in the living room. The big 20 was actually my computers for me. So I had it in my bedroom. And I did have uh, brothers growing up uh, that lived with us. And, you know, I was the one with the computer. So he got this Apple II Plus for the family to use. Well, what started happening is, I mean, I think this might have been like a year later, like maybe 1983, this happened or 1984, maybe. And my brother and I would be always fighting over who could use that computer. Because I think like my brother, who's older than me, my oldest brother, he figured out BBSing. So he would be dialing into BBSs. So then I started doing that too. And this is, you know, when I was nine years old, I was a BBS scene and the the Apple II with the floppy drives and the 80 column display, I really, really was into that because I think I got tired of the 24 column low res display on the VIC, even though it was color. I really, really liked the high res. So that was sort of my second computer. My brother who... Um, I mean like he's probably five or six years older than me so i think he might have been in high school at the time had friends with computers because he's kind of a nerd as well so he was getting copies of games pirated games and stuff like that so i'd be playing like a bunch of games on the apple II, and let's be honest a disc-based game like load runner or something like that is going to kind of blow away most of the stuff on the vic 20. so i really was like i love this apple II, and i think around 1984 my father you know i convinced him to upgrade my computer my personal computer so we replaced the vic 20 with the apple 2c so you know that's the i know it's not as common outside of north america but it's an apple II. it's all sort of integrated built in disk drive it's got 80 column text i had the little nine inch monochrome uh, crt that i can plug into that but i can also plug my little color tv into it if i wanted to play color games so yeah the, the apple 2 was the apple 2c was technically my second computer but the 2 plus was sort of like a Interim sec computer because of the family nature of it.
2: <laughs> well, you mentioned uh copying games there. Like the piracy scene was huge on the Apple II. Did you have like any kind of local local groups or, or scenes that you kind of hooked up with and uh, was there like a local official store as well that you kind of hung around at?
0: Yeah, that's funny you asked because in thinking back to those days, absolutely like my brother was a source or his friends, I guess, were a source of a lot of these pirated games on the two plus, and of course the two plus and the two C were on the same software. So, you know, I, I was able to copy those discs, uh, you know, for my own computer, but it at the time in Montreal, this is such a, a strange thing. And I think back to it, I, I don't really understand how this worked, but there was a store that you could go to and you could buy pirated software in an actual store, like a, an a honest to God store, like on the street. <laughs> and and oh, it was wow. like $2 <laughs> a disc or something. Like it was basically the price of the disc. And there was some copyright law or, or something at the time, at least in Canada that allowed that to happen. Like these were backup copies. I don't remember if they were fully cracked, like with, a you know, intro screens or these were, um, just like, you know, they used a piece of software to copy a copy protected disc onto a backup, but it was, I don't know. It was either like a rental, like you were, you were paying $2 to, quote unquote, rent the software for a week. Or I, I don't know the, the the legal logistics of that, but I remember going there and they just had, if you, it was like if you guys, you know, you go to a record shop back in the old days and you could like look through all the LPs or the CDs later. It was, it was like that. But every floppy disk just had like a printed, like a dot matrix printed label. And these were commercial softwares. They were like games and, and that stuff. So I remember getting a lot of stuff from that store. Like I, I get my dad, I'm like, oh, please let's go down there. And then we go and, you know, I get, you know, he'd, he'd give me a, like a few dollars or whatever. So I'd be able, like pick out a game and bring that home. But it was like only a couple dollars. So a lot of the software I had at the time came from there because BBSing was too slow to download a 300 baud, an entire disk image. Like, I don't think that was even, that wasn't even an option back then.
2: We had a few of that in, in the UK, but it was in very shady stores and it was kind of, um, they'd often be labeled as sold as blank.
0: I I always remember that sold (laughs) as blank, yeah. (laughs) So like you're buying a blank disc, it just happened to have some software on it. Yeah, it's just got the latest game on it, you know, (laughs) and it's written
2: (laughs) on the disc.
1: I mean, there was a market trade near us where yeah, there's like a market stall where a guy used to sell um, I think it was audio tapes, and he had some. If you asked him, he had some discs kind of under the counter he would bring up. So you had to kind of know, you know, the code word or something. I remember.
0: (laughs) I I mean, I, you know, I, you know, over the years making the YouTube channel, viewers from the UK and other overseas countries have sent in, you know, some games on tape, like stuff for the Commodore or the Spectrum and, you know, watching like uh, RMC as well. You know, he talks a lot about this. I mean, it's something that you didn't really have in North America, but being able to walk into the shop and they had like the, you know, the the stuff that was one pound or whatever, like those really cheap games and that's really cool like that that never really existed in the in North America that I'm aware of. I mean outside of piracy, you c- they never sold disc based games for you know two dollars like you know actual legal boxed games. so that's really exciting. I mean I, I kind of feel like that I would have been so excited if you know I lived in the UK and was able to go buy like you know 99p game or whatever two pounds like that's just that's I know two pounds was a lot more value back then than it is now. So it wasn't like a pound was you know worth nothing, but still, I think that's that's really fun with all the artwork. Yeah,
1: I, uh, I used to get. I think it was three pounds pocket money a week. So yeah, the Mastertronic tapes they were like one pound ninety nine. They were the ones I generally bought. But you're right because it was so affordable. Really, you wouldn't bother pirating those games because you know by the time you'd paid for. A cassette tape or a pack of tapes, you may as well just buy the original and have the nice inlay and the the official tape. So I think you know from from that perspective, it probably did help you know legitimate sales.
0: Absolutely. I mean, of course, uh, you know, in hindsight now, when I, I try to use some of these tapes on my Spectrum, for instance, loading them is so frustrating <laughs> that <laughs> I'm just like, okay, I, I miss the fact I could have walked into a store and got like a two pound game, but at the same point, I don't miss this whole like trying to load it five times before I get it to actually work kind of thing.
1: I think that's why we stuck with some terrible games because of the, the effort you had to go to to load them up. You're like, right, I'm playing it now. I'm, I'm spending an hour on this no matter how bad it is.
0: I mean, I, I could, and it's funny because like the Commodore ones do usually load, right? Because the Commodore data set, which I had on the VIC-20, you know, was relatively reliable. There was no like volume control or any of that junk you had to worry about. But the Spectrum I have at least, I think is like an issue two or three or whatever. And it's just terrible at loading anything.
1: Yeah, my first machine was a Commodore Plus 4. So I had the, uh, the the data set on that, but then I went to a friend's house who had a Spectrum, and even hearing the the sound of the tape loading through his television, I was like, "That what, what's your machine doing? Why is it making that sound?" I've never heard that before on the data set.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's I, I you know again like the Spectrum was unheard of in the U.S. or Canada. So now that I've experienced it, it's it's very interesting to to see it, and it's got some. Interesting limitations, but also has you know so many games because of all the bedroom coders and whatnot that were making stuff. That I, I would imagine at the time, if that's the computer you had, and like you walked into the shop and you saw like a wall of tapes that were cheap, I, I would have just. That is an amazing situation that was actually happening in the UK, and I think that was it's a really special time that feels like. I mean, I think all this retro stuff. I'm, I'm you know, changing the topic in a way. You know, kids today, they just go on the App Store or the Play Store on their phone and they just pick something and it's free and, you know, there's microtransactions. I don't know. It's just, there's no wonder anymore. It's just like, ugh, run of the mill. The magic is gone.
1: You know, speaking of magic as well, you mentioned that you you were going on BBSs and that, I mean, the first time I got online and saw, you know, a bulletin board and, and the World Wide web, you know, th- that blew my mind, the fact that I could connect to another computer. And it sounded like you were online pretty early then if you were exploring BBSs in the 80s. I mean, what kind of experiences did you have there? And do you remember what boards you used to dial? And did you ever want to host your own BBS? Or did you do that?
0: Yeah, you know, back in the really old days on the Apple 2 Plus with the 300-baud modem, I really don't remember much specifics other than, You know, BBSs back then, this would have been like, you know, 1983, 84, were just message boards, really. I don't even think they had the multiplayer, like, door games uh, that came later. So I just kind of recall posting messages and stuff and that you couldn't download anything, at least on the Apple II, you could. not so it wasn't like you were getting pictures and stuff. So I don't really remember the specifics, but I do remember that with that 2C that I got, one of the things I was able to get with it, it's a 1200 baud modem. So, you know, double the speed. I BBS'd quite a lot Um, going forward though, you know, I ended up with 2,400 baud modem. This is like, as you know, my technology progressed, I ended up with like a 2GS, Apple 2GS. And then uh, I ended up working in a computer store. So like in the, around 1990, I worked in a computer store while I was working, while I was going to high school and I bought a 9,600 baud modem at that point. And by then I was really big into BBSing. I had a lot of friends who were, and yeah, of course, you know, downloading software, downloading pictures, GIFs, you know, doing FidoNet email, all that kind of stuff. Yes. And as for running a BBS, I did not, I was a co, I was a co-sysop with a friend of mine in high school. So he ran it at his house because he had an extra phone line. Luckily in the, strangely, by this point I was living in the US and there's some interesting stuff that goes on here. You can get a, a phone line called a measured rate or you used to be able to, I don't know about today, but this measured rate phone line that was super cheap per month and if you made outbound calls they would charge you like per minute normal phone lines in the US like for local calls in your area are flat rate like there's no charge like it's just $20 a month and then you can call as much as you want so i ended up having my own phone line because i monopolized the phone in the house otherwise on like bbsing and talking to friends so i got my own line so i could call friends and you know talk for 5 hours or whatever but anyways this measured rate type of line in, if I remember correctly, incoming calls never didn't charge you at all. So you'd pay like $5 a month and you could have a dedicated phone number and you could have inbound calls. So my friend had an extra PC and we ran a BBS on World War IV. And at the time I was uh, an Apple II user still, I had my Apple II GS. I don't remember much details about the BBS and all the files are gone because this was like his computer and he never saved anything. We called it the best of both worlds And it was a BBS that was for PC people and also like IBM PC compatible stuff and also uh, Apple II stuff. So there were, there were wares, we had software and stuff on there and I was the co-sysop, but it was a single line BBS as it was normal back then. Right. So, you know, one person calling in, of course it would make it, you know, be busy for anyone else. So I don't know how much usage it got, but I think it just helped us, um, you know, get software and stuff. So (laughs) that's what I really remember.
2: Well, um, one thing that people did at the time was kind of, you know, sell all their machines and get rid of their childhood ones and then end up buying them back years later. I was wondering if you uh, kept hold of your childhood machines and uh,
0: maintained them or ended up going the other route. You know, that is like the biggest regret that I think most people who are into retro computers have is not having held on to that stuff. And yes, absolutely. I got rid of all of it. And not some of the, you know, I, I lament, or I think back to what, you know, what happened with these machines. Sometimes I don't remember, like I'd get a new machine and the old one would just be, you know, put in a box and, you know, wherever in the closet or, or the garage or something. But I do remember later, like when I have better recollection of things, like in high school and then in college that I had the computer, like I had a for instance I had an Apple 2GS that the one I mentioned and it was pretty decked out with like a hard drive which on Apple 2s is not super not super common so I had a hard drive and a bunch of stuff anyways when I got I don't know what my next I think my next computer from that was an Amiga 2000 so the 2GS got boxed up and put in the garage and I found out later when I asked my parents and this wasn't later as in like you know just 5 years ago this was while I was still going to university I asked them like, what happened to my 2GS? Oh, we had a garage sale and we just sold it. So that's like, you know, the equivalent of the car boot sales you guys have. But except here in the US and Canada, it's just like you put a sign in front of your house garage sale and then you you kind of pull everything out onto your driveway and people come and they buy stuff. So they, I think my parents who were always on a mission to declutter the garage, which was always full of junk, would had sold off all those computers, my Amiga, the Apple 2GS. And the, the sad thing, I'm not so sad about the computers being gone. I'm more sad about all the files that were on there. Like my 2GS, I had probably a few hundred diskettes and I had like schoolwork, like essays from high, in high school and stuff like that. Like things I had written, all that stuff, you know, someone bought and I don't know, it's probably like in a landfill or, you know, whatever, who knows where it is now. But yeah, so I, the only computer that lasted, and this is this funny story, is my VIC-20. And the funny thing is my, bro- so my brother, one of my brothers and my half brother, you know, he has a different mother than I do. So his maternal grandfather, it gets complicated. So I won't get too much into it, but his grandfather, who's not my biological grandfather, but his maternal grandfather was a total basement hobbyist nerd. Like I am, but of course nice. in the sixties and seventies, he was in the ham radio and building kits, you know, like radios and TVs, I don't know, whatever that electronics and stuff, but you know, no computers. He did end up getting a uh, ZX81, which in the US was called the Timex Sinclair 1000, I think. And anyways, so apparently my VIC-20 ended up with him. So when I guess I got the Apple IIc And I, you know, I stopped using the VIC-20. My father must have boxed up the VIC-20 and given it to him because he, I think, had just that ZX-81. Timex Sinclair was like, here, this is a bit better. So he had that. And then years and years later, I'm talking like in the early 2000s, apparently my dad's like, oh, look, I got this from your brother's grandfather. He like gave it back to me because he saved it. So my father actually boxed it up because this was from Canada and he shipped it to me in the US where I was living. And I had my original VIC-20. Now, funny thing is, I didn't know anything about repairing computers at that point. I mean, my electronics knowledge was super rudimentary. And that machine actually had some faults. And I recall the keyboard had a crack in the PCB and I kind of made it work. So then I had the machine working. I stored it in the closet or whatever. I wasn't into retro at all at that point. And when I moved to Portland, Oregon, where I live now, I didn't wanna pay for moving a bunch of stuff I didn't really care about. And I gave that computer and it was, had all the original tapes and cartridges, like the 16K RAM expansion, gave it to a friend of mine. And later when I was more into this retro and doing YouTube, I asked him, hey, what happened to Vic 20 that I, you know, I gave you the the one I used to have when I was a kid. And he's like, oh, it didn't work anymore. I tried it once and it was broken, so I threw it away. Oh. (laughs) So I was like, oh, (laughs) but you know, say la vie right as as it goes i've i've replaced all of the machines that i ever had i have you know new versions of them better because well not every component my 2GS i had what was called a transwarp accelerator on it which the 2GS i mean again more popular in north america but it it was a 16 bit machine uh, that could have been so much better but apple and steve jobs you know purposely hobbled it So a company called Applied Engineering, which was a big Apple II peripheral company, made an accelerator for the 2GS called the Transwarp. And I think it brought up to like 7 megahertz, um, 65C816, right? Same processors like on the the Super Nintendo. Anyways, made the thing fly. That card now, if you go on eBay and look at the sold prices, they're like $500. (sighs)
1: We had no idea back in the day how valuable this stuff was going to be, though, did we?
0: No. And like that card is far more valuable than an actual Apple 2GS computer itself because 2GS, yeah. they had a billion of them, and every school in, in North America had a 2GS. You know, there's tons around, but those Transor cards are super rare. There are, I think there's a clone, like they've re engineered it and recreated all the PAL chips or whatever that make it work. But yeah, the original cards are so expensive. So yeah, that machine got sold at a garage sale with that hard drive and the accelerator and all that stuff. I had like a, a sound card, let me digitize sound. Anyways. Yeah. I mean, those that's that goes back to, oh, uh, you know, kind of wish I had that. But luckily I'm okay with the fact that I have like machines that look the same and bring the same memories back to me, even though it's not the actual machine that I had when I was a kid.
1: Well, what is it about retro that kind of got you interested then? And wh- when did you rediscover these machines and start building up a collection
0: yeah that's it's this is really funny and actually you know (laughs) you're asking a question that's weirdly apropos because i was just organizing i mean i have a lot of stuff right i i I think you had mentioned you have 85 systems i don't even know how many i have it's so many and um so i was organizing some stuff because occasionally i like to purge you know like i i don't need five of one thing so i'll take all the ones I, you know, I don't need and give them away to people. Anyhow, I found a box down in the basement in the crawl space because the way my basement works in my house is it's not the full footprint of my house. It's about two thirds. So in that extra one third of the basement, it's actually a crawl space, which is maybe like three, three feet high. Um, And it is waterproof. It's not like dirt or anything, but I use that for storage. So I, you know, I use a little step stool and I get up into that space it's under the floor of, you know, the upstairs. And um, I put a bunch of boxes and computers and stuff under there. So I was organizing in there because I store stuff in there, like things I don't use that often. And I found this box. And the thing that got me back into retro was a friend of mine who I grew up with. Like I've known him back. um, My my friend, Dave, I've gosh, I think we, we became friends in like the late eighties or in the eighties, it was in in junior high school. So that's like middle school. And he was a big BBSer and a computer user. So, We've been friends ever since. So he sent me a message and he was like, Hey, there's this person selling this um, Micron PC. It was like a Windows 95 PC, a Pentium 166 or something like that. Here in Portland, he happened to look like on the listings of stuff for sale. And this was around 2016. It was unopened, brand new inbox, computer, monitor, you know, a bunch of software and stuff like that. And I thought well, that'd be kind of cool. i I kind of wanted to have an old PC again. At that point in 2016, I had nothing. I had no old computers except for one old Macintosh SE, which used to belong to my parents. It was like my stepfather's music. He, he used a composer. So he used this Mac to do music stuff. So I had that computer cause he gave it to me. Um, but I had nothing else. So I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool to have an old PC again. So I, I texted the old lady that had this thing. And, um, she lived really close by. And I was like, how come you even have this? And she's like, well, my husband bought two computers at that point, like back in 1995 or so, 96. And we used one of them and never used the other one. So it just sat in a box. So I had like the monitor stuff. So anyways, I went and got it from her and I thought this is really cool. Now there's a video on my channel. If you go way back, like around that time where I bring this thing home and I kind of unbox it, I didn't know anything about making videos. Really. I just pointed a camera. It's terrible. It's very cringy to watch. But um, that was sort of what kind of got me started. The YouTube channel at the time was not a channel per se. It was just my YouTube account and I uploaded random crap on there, you know, and like occasionally people would watch stuff. So I put this retro video on there. So that machine is what kind of got me back into it. And when I was down in the crawl space the other day, this was just this past weekend, actually, I found the box of all the original software. You know, Windows 95, Norton antivirus, like a bunch of stuff from the 90s, games and things that had come with that computer. And it had even, I printed out the text conversation I had with this woman who sold it to me. It was like in October of 2016. And that right there is what took me to where I am today with the YouTube channel and my rekindling of this old tech, my rekindling of my love of this old technology.
2: Yeah, we we um both watch our old YouTube videos and we're like, oh my god. And also listen to the
0: first episode of the podcast and it's so cringe. <laughs> I mean, it's isn't it interesting how we evolve, right? The YouTube, I mean, I guess most YouTubers, almost all, are just so we're hobbyists, right? Like we don't have any skills producing anything. Yeah. And this is this might be something that's very unique to North America, but maybe not, is back in the day before the internet we had public access on cable television. And basically it was a channel or a couple channels that your local cable company provided that anyone could put a TV show on. So you would call up your cable company, cable TV, and you're like, hey, I want to put an hour show on public access. And they're like, okay, cool. Like, Here's a time slot. you don't have to pay or anything. There were no ads. And you could tune into this public access channel. and I, I grew up in Los Angeles originally after I left Canada, where you know, there's so many people that on cable, the public access channel was just filled with the most crazy TV shows that were just shot with like video cameras. But it's the same thing. like total cringe, you know, people who don't have any skill, they just have a camera, they set it up, they record onto a tape, and you drive it over to the cable company, you give them the tape, and they play the tape at like two o'clock in the morning you know, on channel 49 or whatever it was, public access. So YouTube has the is the evolution I feel of what was the US public access, US Canada had this public access thing. It's just hobbyists with a camera, and now we have a computer, to do the editing. And now we're getting sophisticated with adding adding titles, graphics, you know, and, <laughs> and music and stuff. <laughs> but I isn't it amazing though, like the the what YouTube has done and podcasting to be honest and and a lot of other things but like youtube is the democratisation of content production where you used to need to have very expensive equipment right to to produce something of decent quality you know like yeah you could have a video camera in the 90s point it at yourself and make a tape but it would look and sound terrible but now for pretty low amounts of money you know cuz you can use your phone if you don't even have a dedicated camera and you can get like 4k video with like amazing picture quality and amazing sound quality. And then you can just use free or next to free software in your computer like DaVinci Resolve, which is free to edit professional level quality stuff and upload it. So it's more about if you are able to learn how to do it, you know, editing and presentation style and lighting and that kind of stuff. But the tools are so readily available now that obviously anyone could do it. And that's why like TikTok, you know, I don't make shorts generally, but that's blowing up because anyone can just make a 30 second short and upload it and people have millions of followers or whatever there. It's amazing.
1: If I think back to when I was at school and college trying to edit video on uh, two VHS decks or audio on reel to reel, then um, then I don't take Final Cut or Adobe Audition for granted if I think about it in that way, how simple it is today.
0: And you know, it's funny in a way yeah. when I, I mentioned, I worked at that computer store growing up um, in high school one, it was, you know, I was in Los Angeles and one of the specialties that that particular store had was selling nonlinear video editing systems to production companies. So mm. I actually worked on the video toaster. Like we had video toasters and this was back in, you know, 90, 91, 92. So we were one of the biggest dealers of video toasters in Los Angeles. And, but we also sold Avid uh, that were like running on Macintoshes and other like video editing systems. And I was a tech, I started there just repairing computers, PCs mainly. Um, even though I never even had a PC up until that point, I was, you know, Apple II uh, and and the Macintosh we had at home. So that's all I had ever really experienced. So I was fixing these these uh, PCs, like building them up and stuff like that. But then I would also be building these non-linear, non-linear video editing systems, like putting them together with like one gigabyte hard drives, which in the early 90s, these hard drives were thousands and thousands of dollars. And you needed several to just have a low res video capture like these avid systems I recall like ran on macintoshes I think they were like 68040 macintoshes and they just had really bad quality but it was good enough that you weren't splicing tape together and I recall and this is Vegas I never saw these in production like I never went to a place that was actually using these to make a movie or a TV show but I think what they would do is you'd edit with this low res and it would create an edit list which then they would con- you could control your decks. So it would like, you put all your tapes in and it would, you know, fast forward, play back, you know, do all the time code stuff to like produce the final output based on your edits that you did in Avid. And that's the evolution, obviously where we are now, like to what you just mentioned, like we're using Final Cut, we're using whatever. And it's like, it's free software practically. And you just can make stuff that blows away the quality of all of that. So it's, yeah, I, it's like, it's democratized. It's. No longer in the realm of movie studios and TV studios. And it's just like the music industry. You know, you had to, you were beholden to your record label and going to studios to do your recording. And now you can just buy all that stuff at home and super cheap and upload your stuff to Bandcamp and, you know, you're cutting out the middleman.
2: And uh, no one will have the nightmare of time code. <laughs> I remember <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Maybe yeah.
1: should have just hearing those words. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's what is what is funny though. Um, and, and I'm learning a little bit about this when it comes to capturing analog video, because I, you know, obviously I do that in my, in my videos, right. Where I working on an old computer, I want to capture the video. So it's digitized and then it's, you know, overlay that. And there's a little bit of an art to dealing with analog, you know, interlaced video that seems to be mostly lost. Like all of the stuff we have these days, like if you take an old videotape and you try to digitize that and preserve all the original interlaced you know quality of it it's not easy anymore to do that uh, like the equipment that that did that stuff was sort of around in the 90s um you know into the 2000s you know for dvd production and you know studios would have this stuff for mastering but it's mostly gone at this point point. and i've been working on trying to gather up equipment like a SDI which is like serial digital interface or I think it's that's what it stands for to try to capture like analog sources into the computer at like perfect quality without losing any any of the frames or whatever and I'm not I'm not yet yeah, I'm not there yet I've been working on this for years. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. So I feel that like there was a lot of expertise back in the day, you know, around this technology and including the time code, but that stuff is sort of lost to time, you know, those folks are retired, you don't really need it anymore. But if you're trying to go back and work like we did, you know, 20 years ago, it's not as easy anymore. I don't know. That's what I've been finding, at least.
2: Well, um, talking of expertise, you do a lot of like retro repairs, and uh, you do quite a few things on monitors as well. Have uh, Have you had much experience in that, or background, or advice from people?
0: Yeah, you know, again, uh, no. When it comes to all of the repairs I do. I have never had any formal education of any kind in electronics or anything. So everything I do now, even around CRT repair is entirely, um, learned from watching other, other YouTube channels or playing around, you know, experimenting myself or trying to do some reading, um, reading old, like Usenet net groups on like TV repair, things like that. Even that's really not super easy. Um, because A lot of that, you know, I think everyone's going to have run into this. If you're into this, that you have people who are like gatekeepers of information, like they don't want to share everything they know. You know, they have their little trade secrets and they'll have an old post that's like, you know, 25 years old on Usenet you find, but it's like lacking some critical information. Like, well, it might be this or this or this or this or this. Like, well, this is not helpful. Like, so yeah, no, I've just, I've, I've just played around and managed to not get shocked badly (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and and I love CRTs The for me, the whole retro experience that we're into the CRT is just as much a part of it as the old computer itself. And I think it's, it's like, yeah, like the, the digital convenience of plugging in an LCD or, you know, I believe me, I do it. Like I I'll, you know, I'll set up my Commodore 64. I'll just use it through my um, capture device on my flat screen because it's quick and easy. But to really get that feel for how it was back in the day i want to have the crt because i want that that blurriness or i want that that flicker you get from the crt it's just something about it in my brain the vibrancy all of those things combined is what like rushes back all those those wonderful memories and it's and, uh, you know what i think it is oh, it's because we
1: spent so so long looking at them that's the thing you spend all your time looking at and yeah. i've said that before on facebook groups and forums and you know some people are kind of flame me for it i've said you know if you're using a modern display. You might as well just use emulation, yeah. Because you know, if you're not going to go the whole hog, why I agree. bother? I or, agree.
0: Yeah, yeah, like the keyboard, like the way the things you touch, right? That you're looking at the screen, you're touching the keyboard, you're putting a tape or a disc a disc in the disc drive. Those are tangible things that, as humans, like they trigger memories, like and smells. But like, smells, sights, touch, sound—you know, these are all our senses. And yeah, just running a 64 emulator, I mean. It's amazing that the emulators exist, don't get me wrong, especially if you're developing software now, you know, to be able to, you know, compile, click, and it's all just running an emulator in a second, it's so much better than, you know, doing it the old school way. But yeah, like that, that, that tangible nature of touching or seeing things, it just can't be replaced with an LCD. And I, I abhor, I hate looking at those CRT filters on C, on LCDs. I mean, I'm like, okay. Great. It looks, you know, it's not a bad approximation, but if I just, if I, yeah, I don't know. Like for some reason, in my mind, I'm like, I just turn that stuff off. I don't put the fake scan lines on. I don't know any of that. Cause I'm like, this is not real. Fake scan lines are fake. So I might as well just look at the nice clear digital pixels, you know, at full brightness versus all this silliness, or I'm just going to use an actual CRT.
1: Well, when you get a new retro machine in, are there any kind of repairs that are most common I think this might be quite valuable for people that, you know, maybe just getting into retro collecting or people like me that have got a big collection of systems that might need a bit of maintaining. Are there any kind of common things and um, things that you look for when you get a new machine in?
0: Yeah, you know, a lot of people have been asking me to keep a record of all the things that I fix and, like, have a, I don't know, some kind of a database or a spreadsheet or or something. It's – the way I look at it is while there are common faults – With machines and like the Commodore 64, obviously, I think I know the best of all computers. I've repaired the most of those. There's absolutely specific common faults on specific machines. So yeah, like this type of motherboard, like these are the the most likely problems. And there's some value to that because someone who might not be as knowledgeable at troubleshooting might be able to like, oh, I'll replace this chip, and then you know, okay, oh, it fixed it, cool. And I mean, recapping is the same thing. People are like, oh, just recap stuff. Like recapping doesn't bad caps are almost never a problem. I mean, you know, if they're leaking, yeah, like on an Amiga, absolutely got to do it. But like on stuff from the early 80s have good quality caps, very rarely is the cap going to cause it not to work. So recapping it is like unnecessary work that could cause damage, especially if you're not really skilled at desoldering and resoldering parts. And that's kind of the danger with even common faults on any computer. So like you go to the Commodore 64 and we talk about like some of the bread bins. Yeah, PLA, the PLA fails a lot. So you could try to get the old chip out, you know, desolder it. Hopefully you don't cause any damage doing it, put the new one in, it might fix it, but it might not. And I think that's the, that's the danger of like having a, you know, a list of common faults, like, Oh, this is usually the problem with this type of thing, because it can cause people to unnecessarily swap out parts, which can easily cause more damage, especially if their skill level at desoldering is not that good. And, If it's not the PLA and it's just a RAM chip and they take the PLA out and they cause a trace to be ripped, put a new one in, don't notice, they're never going to get that computer fixed now. So what, what what I'm saying is that I feel that what I try to teach on the channel is more about troubleshooting, learning how to troubleshoot things and use that logical reasoning and deduction and process of elimination to try to figure out and try to see what the problem is before you take any parts out. And I've been doing that series where I review very cheap oscilloscopes now that you know China is producing these that hopefully arm people with some skills to be able to see the problem like visually on, on an oscilloscope and try to zero in on what is the issue before they take a chip out, which on a machine like a 64, which has potentially a bunch of parts that are, you know, maybe not that common anymore and might be kind of expensive to have some certainty. Okay. I think it's going to be this like CIA chip here. So I'm going to go buy a new one. You know, if they don't have a spare computer, I mean, I have the luxury of having lots of spares, so I could just swap chips around if I needed to. But if you have 164, you're going to have to find, you know, buy a new chip and it's sort of a waste of money if it's not yet, you, you know? So anyways, yeah, I think I can't really point to any one specific issue with any one computer. Like there are in my mind, I have some ideas like, oh, shortboard 64s a lot of time it's the ram that fails like it just seems to be the case um more than any of the other chips but the other 64s yeah plas go bad but rom chips go bad ram chips go bad i think there's so many different faults i get a lot of emails from people asking me like oh i have a 64 and it's a black screen like what do you think it is i mean that's like saying oh i have a car that doesn't start like what's the problem with it i mean there's 50 things that could be wrong with your car that keeps it from starting right and it's uh it's, I don't even know if it's helpful for me to say, oh, your card's not start? Well, you know, it could be the battery. It could be you're out of gas. It could be the engine's blown up. It could be the computer doesn't work. It could be a relay or a fuse that's bad. You know, maybe you're using the wrong key and it's missing the transponder. You know, on and on and on, right? There's so many yeah, possibilities.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I kind of hate to admit it, but I used to use a butter knife to um, pop my Kickstart ROMs out. Um, How important <laughs> is it to have the, the right equipment when you're doing this stuff?
0: Uh, You know, I... To be honest, I am not a proponent of fancy tools. I I I mean, I don't want to insult anyone, but I there are there are people who are like tool snobs where they're like, you need to use the right tool for the right job. And I am not a fan of that. I, I feel that like a little flat blade screwdriver gets a chip out of a motherboard just fine. Now, butter knife, I mean to be honest, <laughs> that's not even a bad thing because it's not that sharp. It was Yeah. And you're not like the, the risk is if you, if you jam a screwdriver into a socket, you can actually scratch the traces, you know, on the underside and maybe cause a fault that you didn't expect just by sticking a a screwdriver in there, a butter knife isn't going to do that. So (laughs) it's not even a bad choice. So I, I like any profession or hobby, so to speak, like photography, A big part of it, like if if you do the analogy to photography, a big part of it is skill level of like using your camera and composition of like, you know, setting up the shot and all that stuff. The camera itself isn't as important as it used to be. In other words, you could still take really great pictures with a really crappy disposable camera. Yeah, it's going to not have the best image quality. And nowadays we have our cell phone, our, our mobile phone cameras. You can still get amazing results from those if you know what you're doing. But if you are a terrible photographer and the person's head is chopped off or, you know, they're <laughs> then you're not going to get very good pictures. Like the sun is shining in the lens, things like that. And I think the same goes for the computers, repairing computers. You just need the basics on like what to do, how to get a chip out. Obviously, I think the hardest thing in the repair world for these retro machines is the desoldering of ICs. That is by far the hardest thing to do. I mean, barring getting something out like an RF modulator, that's hard too because there's a big ground plane and stuff on it, but getting chips out is difficult. And if everything were in sockets, certainly would make repair jobs a lot easier for for novices. Um, I've made a few videos just trying to explain how to like get stuff out safely, but there's really no getting around the fact that if you don't have a good desoldering iron, which, you know, like a Hakko or something that's 300 bucks, I mean, you can get by with the... uh, the ones from Asia, but even those aren't that cheap, you're going to struggle, especially if you need to take yeah. out several chips.
1: Well, obviously getting the machines up and running is one thing. Um, and something that tends to divide the retro community a little bit is restoring the look of the machines. I know there is a camp of people who are like, the cases go yellow. It's, you know, the machines age. It's fine. It's It shows it's had a life some people prefer to leave them like that. Other people, which you know, I think a bit more like me, prefer to retro-bright them and have them looking a bit more like when they came out of the factory. And you know, I'm looking over at my uh, my pearly white Amiga 1200 next to me right now. What's kind of your, your thoughts and methods there? Because I did watch one of your videos recently where you had a bit of a, well, a retro-brighting uh, mishap with an Atari ST in one of your videos.
0: Yeah, that's right. I, I think I'm on the same page as you, where I like to have the machine... Look like how it was when it was new. Meaning, I like if I'm using a machine I used to have as a kid. Like take the Vic 20 for an example. My Vic 20 wasn't yellow and dirty. You know, it was white and clean and new at the time. And I took good care of my computers back when I was a kid, so my stuff was always nice. I like to have the stuff look like it did when it was new. On the other hand, if I get something that's got a lot of character meaning it might have some stickers and some holes drilled in the case for some switches that someone added along the the way. I don't necessarily mind that because that's the part of the machine like you were mentioning. It had a good life. Someone loved it. They used it. They added these mods. They did stuff to it. But no one made their computer yellow. You know what I mean? Like No person willingly wanted the computer to be yellow. They willingly added a switch or a sticker on it because they thought that was cool or whatever. But... The yellowing is just that chemical process that happens, whatever, you know, I'm not going to talk about the conjecture of what what actually causes it, but clearly they were never designed to be yellow. No one ever wanted them to be yellow. So I feel that getting rid of the yellowing and cleaning the dirt off them is sort of like the bare minimum to get them back to at least the way the owner who had it before would have used it or wanted it to be. That's my feeling at least. And on the other hand, though, I am totally in the camp that these retro computers belong to the person who currently has them, meaning that person could do whatever they want to it. If they want to paint it or they want to retrobrite it or they don't want to retrobrite it or they want to cut it up and put an emulator in it or whatever, I mean, it's their computer. They can do those things. And I would be sad to see a beautiful, you know, perfect example of something ruined you know by you know cutting it in half or throwing away the motherboard and putting in a raspberry pi if it's a working motherboard but again i i, I really do feel that like that's up to the person who owns the computer they they're totally entitled
1: whatever makes you happy with your machine i guess isn't yeah. it yeah
0: and like yeah, yeah. The, you know I, I i know people who buy stuff they take the motherboard out right away and put in an emulator and I've actually recommended that to folks like who are trying to get back into Commodore 64s, for instance, they have a bread bin or they have their original bread bin from when they were young and they found it in a cupboard or whatever. And they're like, it doesn't work. And I said, well, this day and age, it's really hard to buy motherboards that, that work, you know, that aren't cheap, you know, they're they're kind of expensive now, you know, to find a functional one and they're, and 64s, let's be honest, they break a lot and you got to have a CRT to really have a decent image quality. So get that Kira thing, whatever, and like put a Raspberry Pi in there and you can plug an HDMI TV in it. And I think for a lot of people, that is a great solution because it's not gonna break, it's reliable and it lets them relive at least some of that feeling of having the machine because they can like type on the keyboard and and use it again. And most people don't have monitors. I don't have access to an original monitor. So yeah, for for the people who are just dabbling again, I think emulation or or like even replacing the motherboard is a great solution because I think you all know, we all know on this podcast here that fixing this stuff is not easy and it's continual and 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 most people have lives and they just want to turn on their computer and play some games and be done with it. You know, they don't they don't want to get into all the fixing stuff.
1: You know, one thing that I've really like recently is the amount of people that are making like, you know, I've seen like new Amiga motherboards are being made where you just put your old chips in there and new Commodore 64 motherboards. And even, you know, you covered the uh, the Commodore 64 SID replacement, the, the ARM SID project. I mean, there are a lot of these kind of mods around and new hardware for classic machines, many of which you've covered on your channel. I mean, are there any, any really impressive things that you've seen or you've covered over the last couple of years? Yeah.
0: I, you know, I love the This the community, the community at large, right? The 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 people trying to keep these machines alive. I I'm in awe, to be honest, that stuff like this is is being created. So like the ARM SID, I mean there's been various SID replacements, but ARM SID is a particularly good one. There's an FPGA SID. There's even an open source FPGA based SID that's being worked on right now. I have a couple of those at home here. They're not they're not out yet, but it's it's you know, they're trying their best to make it sound as accurate as possible. And that's the thing. These machines are not getting easier to keep running, especially the ones that have bespoke parts. I mean, look at the spectrum, right? It's got the ULA inside that's, you know, they have a replacement for now, which is great. But without that, the computer's dead. And unfortunately those frantic chips aren't always the most reliable. And same goes with the MOS chips in the 64, right? And, and the Amiga is another example. Like the Amiga is full of custom chips. Luckily they're reliable. If they weren't, you know, we would have a bunch of machines, I mean, that are going away. And obviously they'd be good, the motherboard's the bad problem. So to your question, I think the thing I'm really impressed with recently is there's a Commodore 64 VIC-2 replacement. It's the Kawari. It's uh, made by Randy. I think he's in in Canada. And that thing is amazing because the VIC-2 obviously in, is an irreplaceable or, uh, you know, you can't find replacements other than you know old ones pulled out of old machines. And without them, that's the heart of the 64, along with the SID chip. And uh, they die. And when they're gone, that's it. You know, your motherboard is just non-functional. So the fact that that exists, that's an entire complicated video chip with sprites and all the intricacies and idiosyncrasies of the VIC-2 is able to be replaced with an FPGA board that you just stick in your machine and... He, he has two different versions out, and actually, I I know some other folks like Jan has done some reviews on him, and and I haven't yet. I did a I did a, a review of his like pre-release board a couple of years ago, but he's uh he's sending me a new one. Anyways, you pop it in, and it, your analog output, so you hook up your seventeen oh two monitor or you know whatever your monitor still just works. I don't know, so that that stuff is amazing to me. The the motherboard replacements I think are a bit strange to me. That's actually one little aspect I don't quite get. With the Amiga, you get battery damage, right? On a lot of them. And that's probably a good thing. But on the 64, 64s don't get battery damage because there's no battery. So, like, it's, I've never run into a 64 motherboard that I couldn't repair ever. And I've probably repaired, you know, hundreds of 64s at this point. So, I think it's maybe obviously just a fun hobby to have a replacement motherboard.
1: And some people want a purple motherboard, you know. And purple. then that's
0: true. And it's funny. <laughs> yeah. I have a couple boards that people have sent me of those, you know, recreations. And like one is red and I think it looks really awesome. It's like beautiful gold um, contacts and it's this red color. And I actually have it up on the wall downstairs in the basement because it just looks so cool. But there's a lot of work involved in, in making <laughs> one of those. And I mean, I can't even imagine making an Amiga 2000 replacement because it's so bitch bigger. It's so many more parts on it. Even though I don't fully get why someone would want to create a 64 replica, at the same point, I love that it exists. (laughs) You know, like it's not for me, but (laughs) I love that it's out there. I'm kind of like that about everything
1: in life. No, very well said. And, you know, thanks to all these amazing people in the community and, you know, your channel as well. Hopefully we can keep these machines running long into the future. I mean, is there anything we should look out for on your channel that's coming up over the next couple of weeks?
0: No, nothing nothing in particular. I have to say, like, when it comes to my channel, I don't plan for things. I just go in the basement and I'm like, Oh, look at this. Like that might make an interesting video. Let me make a video about that. I have the least, like, (laughs) I (laughs) I know other channels have like scripts and plans and (laughs) I just, everything is off the cuff. I don't, I don't script anything. I don't pre do any work. I just sit down, I film, I record with the cameras and I edit together later. I always hope that late in editing, I can make a cohesive video that's actually interesting to watch so yes i don't really have a pipeline i don't have things coming i just I just have <laughs> random stuff that's my channel adrian's random stuff
1: well whatever you've got coming up adrian um i know it'll be entertaining and uh, informative as uh, all your videos are so uh keep up the good work and uh, thank you so much for coming on and uh, reminiscing with us it's been great talking to you
0: likewise yeah you you both as well yeah good luck with the channels and uh it's makes me really excited that there are more and more YouTube channels uh, doing this type of stuff and the community is, if, is growing more than anything. And I hope that this, I hope like we can all continue doing this and this hobby will keep us going for a long time, at least for the rest of our lives. You never know, right? Maybe in five years, everyone's like, oh, who cares about this crap anymore? <laughs> But you know, whatever. I, I make videos just because I think it's fun and I think you guys do too. So uh yeah, that's just awesome. Thank you very much.